Would you turn with me in the scripture again to Genesis, the third chapter? We've been on a uh, topic for some uh, weeks now that we've been calling the blame game, the blame game. And we'll actually be talking some more about that title in just a few moments. But let's look at our text in Genesis chapter 3 and about verse 7, Genesis 3 and 7. This is the story of Adam and Eve and the fall. When they uh, ate of the forbidden fruit, the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They tried to cover up what had happened. Verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Then uh, the Lord God called to Adam. He said, "Uh, where are you? And uh, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let me just stop here. It's always a mistake, always a mistake to run from God. It's always a mistake to try to hide something from God. You know, um, when the Lord told uh, Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, well, he went and bought a ticket on a boat going the other direction and fled from the presence of God. Well, you read the rest of the, the book, the little book, it didn't work out. I mean, you, how can you flee from the presence of God? How can you hide something from the one who is everywhere and knows everything? It's, if we realize this, we'd never run away from God. If we make a mistake, we'd run to him. He said, I, I was naked. I, I hid myself. Verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So when hiding and covering didn't work, then he tries to blame his wife and God. If you're not able to hide it and cover it, What else can you do? Well, you can try to accuse somebody else and blame somebody else. This is all at the prompting of the enemy. Adam and Eve had never acted like this before. Never. There was no cause for it. But now you see the results of sinning, of disobeying, of falling, of spiritual death, and this attempt to hide To cover why? Because of fear and because of shame and embarrassment. But this is the exactly the wrong thing to do. We should never run from God. We should never try to hide something from God. First of all, you can't do it. (laughs) Secondly, He's the one that can help. He's our answer. He's our help. Go to Him. Confess it to Him. Acknowledge it. Accept responsibility, and you can get mercy and help. He said, the woman that you gave me, 
She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent. So she's trying to blame the serpent. He beguiled me, and I did eat. So this blame thing started immediately at the fall. In uh, Proverbs 28:13, if you'd put that up on the screen for us, Proverbs 28:13, it says, "He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy." The Living Bible says it like this, the Living Bible. A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses them and forsakes them, he gets another chance or another opportunity. He that refuses to admit his mistakes, instead of saying covers over his sins. So the world is absolutely full of blaming and covering and hiding and lying The scripture tells us that Satan, the devil, is now the acting God of this world and that he is the father of lying and deception. And so it is just his uh, standard operating procedure to lie. Have you ever seen folks that will lie when the truth would have served them better for what they thought they wanted? I mean, there really was no even practical reason in trying to better yourself to tell the lie, but the enemy is always trying to feed this deception and covering and hiding, and part of this is blaming, blaming, blaming. The devil is the accuser of the brethren, and if we we or anybody yield to the enemy, you'll wind up accusing somebody else. You don't have to look far. I mean, most all of the news or the talk shows or political commentators, what are people doing? Blaming, 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 blaming. Why? Why is this so common? Why is this so prevalent? Like we said, the enemy's behind it. We're going to see it more clearly tonight and some answers about this. But one thing we want to know is just get established of the source of it. This didn't exist until Adam and Eve fell and the enemy's influence began to dominate in the earth. You won't hear any blaming and accusations in heaven. (laughs) Somebody say, thank God. (laughs) When you get to heaven, you won't hear anybody accusing are blaming. Thank God. Won't it be good to be done with all that? Look, please, in the book of Luke, the 10th chapter, and let's begin reading about verse 25. Luke 10:25, it says, A certain lawyer stood up and tempted Jesus saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're going to keep reading for several verses here. 
And Jesus said, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Now, you know, this is interesting. He didn't just ask him what's written in there. He said, how do you read it? (laughs) You know, it's written right, correct. That doesn't mean you read it right. You can read it wrong. And so uh, the man said, uh, it's written. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered right. Do this, and you'll live. And verse 29, but he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I think you could add on the word neighbor some quotation marks. (laughs) Who is my neighbor? Now, we're going to see, uh, just stay at that verse for just a moment. We're going to see, as we get into this, that this is a form of um, blaming and accusing is to be legalistic and emphasize technicalities. And people think, you know, because it seems to work with people getting out of something or getting away with something, but it never works with God. You, you're not going to play games with Him about technicalities or legalisms. Now, there's nobody that's more precise than God is. He's perfect. Everything he says and does is perfect. But he's not looking at the you know, technical details in dealing with us. We'll find from the scripture, he's always looking at what? Anybody know? The heart. He's always looking at your heart. So if you're trying to emphasize legalisms and details when that's not what you know in your heart, it's not going to work with God. He he won't accept that. Let's look at it again back at verse 29. He willing to, to justify himself. Now see, we see now why he's bringing this up. He's bringing this up to justify him not doing the previous verse, not loving his neighbor as himself. You know, he and maybe some of the um, theologians of the day, they have taken this word neighbor apart. They have studied all of the etymological root words and they have classified what a neighbor is and what a neighbor is not, meaning that I don't have to treat these people good. I don't have to do anything for them. I don't have to love them because they're not a neighbor. But Jesus didn't let it slide. He said, and who is my neighbor? Well, verse 30, Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this is not a parable. Jesus used parables and similes. But when you see when it starts out and says, a certain man did this, this happened. This was an individual and a thing that happened in these days. A certain man went down from Jerusalem. 
to Jericho, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his raiment or his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he decided he wasn't a neighbor. Because <laughs> he was from a, you know, he, he's not Jewish. And so they had, uh, you know, through their studies and teachings, whatever. So he could just walk on by. He passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. So the, the, you know, priests and Levites are the chosen of God. They are supposed to be the most knowledgeable of the word of that day. They're supposed to be anointed for their things. And so the Levite, when he came to the place, he looked on him. And I guess he decided he wasn't a neighbor either. And so he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now, a number, we know of the religious leaders, were very prejudiced against Samaritans. We remember Jesus had that involved conversation with the woman at the well about Samaritans. But here Jesus is showing that people that they consider, you know, not even somebody that knows anything about God. This man came by. When he saw the man that was in trouble, he had compassion on him. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the morrow, when he left, he took out two pence, which like two days wage of money, he gave to the host and said, take care of him. And whatsoever you spend more, when I come again, I'll repay you. Now here is a big reason why it's God's will for us to be prosperous. Can you see this, friends? He had to have enough money to travel and do business and go to the hotel himself. You know, and he had to have enough extra money on top of that that he could put this man up pay for his medical bills, pay for him to stay more than a day, and tell the man, you know, if he needs to stay longer, just put it on my tab, and I'll pay you when I come again. Now, people who fight so-called prosperity and abundance, they're fighting this. Because if you don't have enough to pay your own bills, you sure can't do this. So, God's will is always for us to have more than enough to take care of our things and personal things. Our ministry to others is in our overflow. Our abundance is the means of our ministry to reach out to others. So he said, uh, I'll pay you when I come again. And so you got to remember, this all started with this man saying, who is my neighbor? So the Lord tells him this, this actual thing that happened. He said, now of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these do you think was neighbor <laughs> to him that fell among the thieves? Verse 37, he said, he that showed mercy on him. Jesus said to him, will you go and do like that? You do like that. So Jesus took it out of the realm of being technical. 
and being legalistic and emphasized mercy and heart that's right. Not trying to, you know, see what I don't have to do. Notice that this said the man emphasized this neighbor definition because he was trying to justify himself. He was trying to excuse him not doing anything, him not helping people by being legalistic and technical. And the Lord's, you know, had this recorded for all of us so that we wouldn't do that. You know, a good question to ask ourselves, and I ask myself this on a, a regular basis, what if everyone was doing what I'm doing? What if everyone was doing what I'm doing as far as working, as far as giving? How would things be? <laughs> now, if you're doing nothing, then things would be in a mess. If you give nothing and everybody was doing what you do, or if everybody was giving pennies when they had thousands, things wouldn't be well. Would all the needs be met? Would all the churches and ministries have plenty if everybody was doing what I'm doing? And it's not about amount. It's about percentage. It's about heart and about work. If everybody was working like I'm working, would everything be getting done? If everybody was giving like I'm giving, would the needs be met? Would there be abundance? Would there be plenty? So there's no excuse for doing nothing. Everybody can do something. And if all of us are doing what the Lord leads us to do in work, in effort, in prayer, in faith, in witnessing, in giving, if all of us are doing what the Lord's leading us to do, there's going to be overflow. The work's going to get done. The gospel's going to get preached. The needs are going to get met. But when you start getting legalistic, trying to justify yourself, yeah, but I'm on a fixed income. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I don't, I can't walk very well. Yeah, but, yeah, but. So it's the same thing as who's my neighbor. Reasons why I sh nothing should be expected of me. Reasons why I shouldn't, you know, it's okay for me to do nothing. It's not okay for anyone, any believer, to do nothing. With this in mind, go with me, if you would, over to the book of Job. There is so much to see here in this book of Job. I know as a boy, I was um, perplexed by the book of Job. <laughs> and I, I don't claim to understand it all. Now, I'm not saying that, but I sure see a lot more than I, I used to. But what's Job about? 42 chapters. There's a lot of stuff in there. But to sum it up, what happened? And what are we to learn from it? I want you to notice this. The book starts off with accusation. And it continues chapter after chapter after chapter with accusation after accusation after accusation after blame after blame. The whole book is full of accusations. 
and blame. You remember in the beginning, first couple of chapters, the devil came up and accused Job to God. And then for, I don't know, 30 some chapters, (laughs) Job's three friends who came originally to comfort him remained to torment him and accused him of missing it and failing and sinning and doing all number, all manner of things that would have brought judgment. And here's what many have not seen. Job's response to this was to do some blaming of his own. And you know who he blamed? God. Job blamed God and accused God of not being fair. Now Job was a good man in so many ways, but he missed it in this area big time. Let's look at some scripture to confirm this to you, see what we're talking about. In Job 32, we'll just look at a couple of places because this, that's what we're talking about, it's the, the blame game. In Job 32 and 2, 32.2 says, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he, Job, justified himself rather than God. Now we just got through reading that that man that wanted to get technical about who's my neighbor, he did that trying to justify himself. In that case, his lack of doing anything, trying to justify himself. Well, let's just back up to our text. Why would Adam immediately respond by trying to blame his wife and blame God? He's trying to justify what he did. He's trying to excuse what he did. That's why she's blaming the serpent. So, it says... uh, that Job was justifying himself rather than God. You can see that in the 27th chapter, Job 27.1. 27.1, moreover, Job continued his parable, and he said, As God lives, who has taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who has vexed my soul, All the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I'll not remove my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. He said that God had taken away his judgment. That he accused God, don't just take my word for it, read it carefully sometime. He accused God of being unfair, of letting these things happen to him. He accused God of being unjust. And he went on to try to to say, if you read this, that he was saying for God to give him an audience. I'll just paraphrase. He said, uh, you know, appoint me a time and, and plead your case and tell me what I've done wrong. And I'll plead my case with you because I'm, I'm just, I'm righteous. 
And he, of course, got to remember the guy's hurting. He's in pain. He's had all this tragedy happen to him. We're not, we're not trying to judge, but he is upset with God. And he is blaming God, accusing God of being unfair and unjust. In Job 13, this is a verse that people quote sometimes, but they only quote half of it. Job 13, 15. Job 13, 15 says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's not the rest of the verse. But, but I will maintain my own ways before him. The Young's literal says it like this. Only my ways to his face I will argue. Verse 22. He said, Call and I answer. Or speak and answer me. He's challenging God. Verse 23. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face from me and hold me for your enemy? He's talking to God. And he's accusing God of being unfair to him. And unjust to him. Now I want you to notice when this thing turned around. Let's just fast forward to the end of the book. Chapter 42. When this thing completely turned around, as long as the devil's accusing and blaming Job, and Job's three friends are blaming Job, and Job is blaming God, it just gets worse and worse. Chapter after chapter after chapter. No mercy, no grace, no help. No restoration, no relief, and none in sight. Until God showed up and spoke in a whirlwind. And when the first words he says, he's quoting Job. Because Job said, you know, show up and speak. And I'll answer, or you tell me and I'll answer, or I'll tell you and you can respond. And so God quotes Job and basically says, I'm here. I'm here. Tell me. You know, explain to me how I'm unrighteous and how I'm unfair. And Job couldn't open his mouth. And so then God begins to say, well, let's see if you can answer some easy ones first. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he just asked him question after question that every one of the questions would be obviously Job could have to say, no, I don't know. No, I wasn't there. No, don't have a clue. No, uh uh-uh, I don't know. No, no, I don't have a clue. No. And so basically God's saying, you don't understand any of this, yet you're going to accuse me of being unfair and being unjust. And doing you wrong. Look in the first verse of chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, after he had heard all that, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withholden from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? In other words, he's saying, me. I've uttered things I don't understand. I've talked about things that were too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Here I beseech you, and I'll speak, I'll demand of you, and declare thou to me. These are words he had said to God. 
that God then said back to him. I've heard you now, he said, by the hearing of my ear. I've heard of you, but now my eye has seen you. He saw a manifestation to go, wherefore I abhor myself and I do what? I do what? This is where everything changed for Job. Come on, can you see it, friends? I repent in dust and ashes. I repent. And then he said in verse 7, he said, uh, the Lord said, I'm, basically I'm not happy with your friends. And he told them, you better bring some sacrifices and get my servant Job to pray for you. Because I'm not pleased with you. And so they did. And uh, verse 10, and the Lord turned. Now this is, a, this is a key word. That's what repent means. That's part of what repent means is to turn. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I want you to notice when this happened. It happened when Job stopped blaming God and stopped blaming anybody else And he repented, genuinely repented as soon as he turned from what he was saying and doing, God turned his captivity, delivered him from the disease, delivered him from the attacks and oppression of the enemy, and wound up giving him twice as much. And he was, by today's standard, a billionaire before he lost everything, but before it was all said and done. God gave him twice what he lost. Oh, somebody say, praise God. Thank God. Glory to God. God, and James, you know, talks about this, about how that even though Job, you know, said some things that were wrong, he didn't just quit. He persevered. And how that the Lord was very gracious and merciful. You know, he's looking at the heart. Even though Job said some hard things against God, the Lord knew his heart. He knew he was hurting. He knew when he saw it, he would turn. He would repent. And so God tolerated it and even did something spectacular. Spoke to him out of a whirlwind. (laughs) And when Job's eyes were opened and he saw what he had been doing, how he had been blaming God, blaming God, blaming God. I mean, that whole thing was blamed. Satan accusing him. His three friends accusing him. Him accusing God. Can you see this is going all through this? And only when he stopped blaming and accusing and repented did it change. Oh, it's a mistake to blame anybody for our choices, for our words, our mistakes. Why? Because when you're down, when you're hurting, when you've messed up, you need grace. You need help. You need mercy. But if you blame other people, you won't get either one. It's only when you confess it and you choose to turn away from it and make a change, heart, mind, action, that's when God is able to turn everything around. God turned his captivity. Hallelujah. Oh, somebody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But do you see it was the heart change that allowed the Life change. Blessed be God. Thanks be to God. 
Go with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 1, and there's a number of verses we want to read here. But this picks up again what we saw with the man that said, Who is my neighbor? Trying to justify himself. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, and we're going to read several verses, but how many know that, uh, you know, you can't read too much scripture and get hurt by it? 1 Samuel 15, 1, Samuel said to Saul, who had become king over God's people, he said, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou to the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not. Slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, ass. He's talking about Everything. Everything. Well, skip down to verse 8. After they had, you know, assembled the troops, marched there, he, Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, now let's, who, who did this? Saul. And the people spared Agag, and they spared the best of the sheep, and the best of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and best of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they utterly destroyed. Then came the word of the Lord to Samuel, saying, It repents me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried to the Lord all night. You know, it's very obvious in reading all these accounts, God doesn't control people. Even when something's his plan and his will, and he chooses people and anoints people, they can still, we can still ignore him, disobey him, displease him, we always have a free will. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and now gone down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now we just got through reading, what did the Lord say? The Lord said he didn't perform the commandment. But the first thing he leads with is I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what means this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? He said, what's all this livestock I hear? And Saul said, 
They. <laughs> Let's just stop right here. Everybody say they. They. Oh, we need to watch. In times of duress, about pointing the finger and saying, they. They. Isn't this the same thing that Adam did, that Eve did, that Cain did, Esau did, that we've studied prior? They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Now we already know from the previous text, it said Saul and the people did this. So he was in the lead on this. But when it comes time to deal with it, he leaves himself out and just talks about them. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and they did it for the Lord. They did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now, he's emphasizing what they did and ignoring what they didn't do. And he's, he's saying his modification, their modification is actually a better idea because we can, we're going to sacrifice all these uh, animals to the Lord. It's going to be great. And uh, Samuel said to Saul, stay and I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, say on, which is disrespectful. This term, say on, he's not in the right frame of mind. Samuel said, when you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a journey and said, go, utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but you did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now let's just stop right here. He's justifying himself. And he's, trying, he's being legalistic about what he did. And he's refusing to acknowledge the disobedience and he's blaming the people. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Well, the Lord told him not to do that. But I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Now, friends, this is so important. The, the truths here are heart revealers. And God's always looking at the heart. In fact, this phrase about you know, don't look on the outward appearance. God doesn't see as man sees, for the Lord looks on the heart. It's just a few verses below this. Just in the next chapter, just a few verses later, is when God says this concerning David. But folks that want to be legalistic would look and go, well, man, he was um, 80%, you know, obedient. Why make such a big deal? Out of this other, he just made a mistake. No, no, not to the Lord. And it's not about being technical. 
It's about refusing to take any responsibility for your mistake. It's about blaming others. He said, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I've gone the way which the Lord sent me. Verse 21. But the people, everybody say the people, the people, oh, the people get blamed for a lot. The people. Have you ever heard this phrase? You know how they are. (laughs) They, them, they, them. The people, they took the spoil, sheep and oxen, chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. Well, now, He's telling off on himself. He knows what should have happened. But the people did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He is the king. The people did not do this on their own. We we look in previous verses. It led by saying Saul and the people did this. He led in this. Probably was his idea completely. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Let's just stop right here. Jesus said on another occasion in the gospel accounts, he said, uh, quoting scripture, he said, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want kindness and mercy, not just offerings and sacrifice. So many times, folks wanting to justify themselves, the Lord said, he dealt with them, I want you to get on a team and give some time every week. And they decide, well, I'm going to give a big offering of money to the church. That won't cut it. You're trying to do what he did. If the Lord asks for time, it ain't going to work for you to give him money. Well, you know, the Lord dealt with you to to go see somebody. Well, I'll just, I'll pray for him. Well, no, if you know what he said, no amount of effort or sacrifice is going to equate to obedience, to walk in the light that we know and do what we know. Does the Lord have his great delight in, in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken, pay attention, is better than the fat of rams. Keep going. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, almost no Christians would agree that it's okay to have a little witchcraft in your life. (laughs) But how many Christians would think, would readily admit, I'm pretty stubborn? You know, I know I'm stubborn. Well, stubborn is like idolatry. How much idolatry is okay? You might say, well, you know, I don't have a big idol. It's just a little idol that I keep in my bedroom, and I only pray to it about once every quarter. So it's not a lot of idolatry. It's just a little. Well, that's how much stubbornness is okay. I'm not stubborn all the time. But I do get stubborn sometimes. Well, what does that mean? Rebellion is like witchcraft. It's sin. Stubbornness is like idolatry. It's iniquity. He said, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, 
He's rejected you from being king. Now let me stop here. This is so severe because Saul absolutely refuses to repent. He is still arguing. And he thinks he's arguing with Samuel. But Samuel is just repeating to him what he heard from God himself. God's the one that said, you didn't do the commandment. And yet Saul has said repeatedly, I did do the commandment. Well, see, he, don't, he probably didn't realize it, but he's in God's face telling God he's wrong. I did do it. If God says you didn't do it, I don't care what you understand. What should you say? Yes, Lord. Right? <laughs> Realizing he's right. He's always right. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Now let's just stop right here. You might say, uh, he said, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. You might read that and go, well, Brother Keith, you're wrong. He repented right there. He did not. He did not repent. It's possible to say the right words, but never repent. He said, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. See, he's still not taking any responsibility for this. He's saying, yeah, I guess it worked out that way, you know, but I was scared of those people. You know how they are. Lies, lies. And, and, and I obeyed their voice. Lies. Justifying himself. Now, now notice why he said it. Now therefore I pray you. Pardon my sin. Turn again with me. That I may worship the Lord. He is not repenting. Even though he's saying all the right thing. Why? He's not sorry that he didn't do what God told him to do. He's only concerned about making a good show in front of the people right now. They're supposed to have, Samuel is supposed to come, and everybody has great respect for Samuel. Everybody knows he is the man of God. He hears from God. They have seen signs and wonders in his ministry. And so it's a big deal for him to go almost arm in arm with the king they go to the altar. They, you know, this is, they've had the great victory over Amalek. And so if this doesn't happen, this is going to be a giant letdown. And if Samuel is not going to do this with him, he's going to lose face today. Big time. That's what he cares about. And he's not repenting. Let me go over again this slowly. You can say all the right things. But not repent. You know, the Lord said this. He said, people draw near to me, you know, with their voice, their mouth, but their heart is far from me. And it's, it's always about the heart. He said, so pardon my sin. And here's the thing. Turn with me that we may worship the Lord. Verse 26. And Samuel said to the Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Now let's just stop. People might read this and think, well, man, he's being, Samuel's being harsh. No, he's representing God. He's doing exactly what the Lord is directing him to do. Well, why? Saul said, I'm sorry. Yeah, but he didn't repent. 
He did not repent. If you make a mistake and it's discovered and you cry and you feel so bad, why do you feel bad? Because you got caught and you cry? Yeah, but why are you crying? Because you're ashamed? Because you're scared? There's no repentance in any of that. And if there's no repentance, there can be no, no grace and no help and no recovery and no deliverance. This is why, if you read the rest of the account, Saul loses his place as king and before too long is killed in a battle and never gets over it. He never recovers. An evil spirit attaches to him and he has fits of depression and anger and rage. He never is okay after this. And it's because he would not repent. He refused to. In his heart, he's still arguing. He's still arguing, justifying himself. Yeah, but I did do it. Yeah, but God said you didn't. Yeah, but the people, they, they. That we, we've said this before, but let it sink in, brother, sister. The worst thing that could ever happen to us is refusing to repent. Because anything else God can fix. Anything else. If we'll repent, we can be forgiven, we can be restored, God can have mercy and help, but if you harden your heart and you stiffen your neck and you rebel and are stubborn and refuse, won't even admit your mistake, you're stuck. You're stuck. It will not get better. You will not be okay. And it's nobody's fault but the person that's doing. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord's rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 27. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he, Saul, lay hold upon the skirt of his mantle. He grabbed his clothes. And he did it so hard and forcefully that his clothes ripped. Does this look like the action of a repentant man to you? He's ready to force him to do this. See, he hasn't repented. He said all the right words, but there's no repentance. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has rent or ripped torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours that is better than you. This is never the perfect will and plan of God that somebody experiences judgment, but this is what happens if someone's unwilling. Verse 29, also he said the strength of Israel will not lie, nor repent, he's not a man that he should repent. And so uh, then Saul says, I've sinned. And yet you see, even though he's saying the right thing, he hasn't repented. Why? It's all about this. Honor me now, I pray you, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He's just fixated on saving face in front of the people. That's all he cares about. 
Because if he really cared that he had been rebellious and didn't obey God, he wouldn't be pushing this. He'd be repenting before God. And so, verse 31, Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. He did it. He did it in front of the people. But if you read the rest of the, we don't have to read these other verses, but if you read the rest of the chapter following this, it was the end of Saul's reign. It was the end of him experiencing this anointing as king. Thank God for repentance. It is the gift of God. It is the way, if you've messed up terribly, it's the way out of the problems. If you've gotten far from God, it's the way back. The scripture said, if you'll judge yourself, you won't be judged. Saul refused to do that. He's an example of what never to do. Thank God for the Lord's mercy. Thank God for his grace. But in order to enjoy it, in order to experience it, we must humble ourselves. We must not argue with him or with those that he's speaking words through to us. We must yield to him and submit to him. And if he tells us that we, we missed it on something, be quick to agree with him, quick to repent, quick to believe, quick to be willing to change. And if we'll do that, no matter how terribly we messed up, if we'll do that, grace will flow to us, hallelujah, like a stream and put strength in us and give us wisdom and give us answers. And God will incline people's hearts toward us and they'll give us favor and mercy and help if we'll genuinely repent. Stand on your feet, everyone. This ministry has been brought to you today free of charge by the partners of More Life Ministries and Faith Life Church. If you would like to help send this word to others at no charge, you can become a word sender today. For more information, visit our website at morelife.org.